Has anyone in here ever done something foolish? <laughs> I remember <laughs> back when uh, I was dating Melissa. So this is a few years ago. Um, when we were dating, and we went up to Steamboat Springs for the 4th of July, and um, we're gonna go, we were going to go on an alpine slide. Anybody ever been on an alpine slide? Anybody in here? Raise your hands. Yeah. So I'd never been, but I was told, okay, you go really fast down this fiberglass like tube of a slide, and because it's fiberglass, do not touch the side, okay? It will be really bad for you. I was even warned with a story. They were like, oh, this person did it, and they kind of fell off, and it was like scraped them up. They got fiberglass in their skin. I was like, oh, man. So I got the warning, I was told, but I wanted to show off for Melissa, right? I want to show her how cool I was um, dating her, and, and I was like, oh, I got this. I'm going to go so fast. So we were going, and we were going to race, right? And I'm like, I'm going to beat her for sure, show her how great I am. And as we're going down, of course, you know what happens, right? I fall off the side of it, and I scrape up my arm. And I had to dig through the archives on my hard drive to find this photo from a few years ago. And if you look real close, I still have a gigantic scar on my arm from where I got a bunch of fiberglass in there. It was disgusting to clean out that wound, and I still bear the scars of my foolishness, right? And we often do the most foolish things when we're the most prideful, right? Have you guys ever noticed that? Like when we're feeling like we're on top of the world, we know what's going on. That's when we do the dumbest things. And it's our pride that causes problems. So we are in the book of Daniel in a series we're calling Thrive in the Fire. And in today's message in chapter four, we are going to get to see and learn from somebody else in the prideful and then foolish things that they do. And our big idea today, if you're taking notes, it's going to be simple. Pay attention if you want to write this down. Don't act a fool. Let Jesus rule. Okay? Don't act a fool. Let Jesus rule. I thought about saying, don't pity, or I pity the fool who doesn't let Jesus rule, but then I said, okay, maybe maybe this will remember a little bit more. Don't act a fool. Let Jesus rule. Because when we are prideful, we can do very foolish things. And the alternative is to humble ourselves. And let Jesus rule. That's what we're going to see today from Daniel chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Daniel 4 verse 1. If you have a smartphone, you can, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, download it on your phone. You can find our event um, and just you can save notes right in the phone with, with all of the scripture that we're going to be looking at today. And when we have these big chapters, um, I always say this, every word and every verse is inspired by God. It's important, but we don't read every word and every verse in these long chapters, but you should read it on your own. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1 today. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. So this chapter is Nebuchadnezzar writing a letter or um, dictating a letter to everyone, to us. And in verse 2 we read, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Verse 3, he continues, How great are God's signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. If you've been here at all and you know anything about the book of Daniel or about the historical figure that was King Nebuchadnezzar, you should be scratching your head. This does not make sense. What is going on here? What happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? And why is he praising God? Is he a believer all of a sudden? What happened? What happened 
to him. I want to know more. You should be intrigued because King Nebuchadnezzar was the king, the emperor of the Babylonian Empire, which was definitely not worshiping God. They had hundreds and thousands of gods, but they didn't like the one true God. In fact, King Nebuchadnezzar was this general, and he was so great that he won battle after battle so that he ended up taking over most of the Middle East of his day, as we'll see in this map behind me. Um, his capital in Babylon was in what is now modern-day Iraq. He went and took over most of the Middle East of those days, including Jerusalem, the city where God's people had lived. And everywhere he captured, he would take the brightest people, the richest people, the most powerful people, and he would take them as slaves, He would take them as slaves and bring them as exiles to live in his capital city of Babylon and serve him. He would take teenagers like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Benny. You know, we've been introduced to those guys that were worshipers of God, but they were brought as teenagers to Babylon as exiles. They were castrated. Yeah, they were castrated. Then they were forced to go to Babylon University where where they were taught how to um, listen to demons and they were learning all the religious texts and, and trying to push them to believe anything but what God had said in the Bible. And we already saw in chapter 1 where Daniel and those three guys, the, these four friends, were like, no, we're going to be faithful to God even if everybody else conforms to the empire, to Babylon. And they were like, the one thing that we can do to be different is eat vegetables. We're not going to eat the fatty meat and the wine that everybody else is eating from the emperor. We're going to eat vegetables. And that's when God pulled off the first miracle of vegetarians gaining weight over three years. Okay, it was. They gained weight after three years of eating vegetables, more than the guys who ate the meat and the wine. That's a miracle from God. And so Nebuchadnezzar saw that, and he was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I'll make you guys advisors. But he was not converted to believing in God. Just like, oh, that's cool. So that was the first miracle. Didn't do it for him. Second miracle in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had this terrifying dream. He freaked out about it. In order to know that he got an interpretation, he brought in all of his interpreters, all his magicians and astrologers to come in, tell him what his dream was, but he wouldn't tell him the dream. He's like, you tell me, because then I'll know you know the interpretation. Nobody can mind read, so he's like, okay, I'm going to rip you all limb from limb and destroy your houses. Real kind guy. Um, when Daniel heard about this, he's like, I don't want to die. Give me a crack at it. So he prays. God gives him the second miracle of mind reading because he goes before the king and says, this is what your dream and this is what it means. And he's right. Second miracle. After that happened, Nebuchadnezzar's like, wow, the miracle of mind reading, your God is pretty cool, but he's just one of all the gods. Like, we'll, we'll make Daniel, like, my head advisor and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they can be some of my advisors too. Like, those guys are important. They've done some cool stuff. But I'm still going to worship all my gods. That was after the second miracle. Then the third miracle came. Last week we saw this. When he's like, I'm all that. I'm going to build a giant statue, 90 feet tall, covered with gold. And everybody, as soon as I play music, is going to bow down and worship this god, this image that he made for himself to show how great he is, King Nebuchadnezzar. And they did that music, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood. They didn't bow. They stood with Jesus. And because of that, he took them and threw them into the blazing furnace, where it was probably close to 2,000 degrees, and the third miracle came. might be the miracle of the asbestos kids, right? They get thrown in. Nothing happens. They're in the fire. Even though the guy's throwing them in, catch flames, they do not. In, in the third miracle, a, a fourth person appeared in the flames, which most Christians think was a pre-incarnate Jesus. He was there with them. And in the miracle, all three of them did not get burned in the flames. They came out. And Nebuchadnezzar once again was like, wow, that is pretty cool. Your God must be powerful. He's a good God, and we'll put him up with all the other gods. 
We'll put them up with all the other gods. So this was Nebuchadnezzar. After three miracles, you'd think those would be the miracles that would be like, okay, maybe I'll believe in the one true God and worship him only. But he still didn't. He still didn't. And I think at that root is pride. There are a lot of people in pride who are like, wow, Jesus, that's pretty cool what he did. Christianity, there's some good stuff in there. But I'm just going to add it to all the other stuff I'm doing. Because I want to make my own religion. Did you know that's what most people do? Especially in our country. It's like, yeah, there's some people that adhere to certain different religions, but most people are like, I'm just going to pick and choose what I like from each religion. I like uh, meditation over here from the Hindus. Like, uh, I like doing some yoga. I'm going to add that and do some spiritual things. I'm going to go out into nature to experience God like, like the Native Americans did. And we combine all these things. Bless Jesus, that was a cool dude. We're going to learn from some of his teaching. Just the teaching I like, though, not the other stuff about sex and stuff, you know, and we make this list to make our own religion, and that is pride. That is pride, to say, I can make my own religion, and it will be the best religion. That's pride. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here, and yet we see in verses one through three, what did we see? It seems like he has genuinely been converted to worship the one true God, that he's the king above all kings. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar that three incredible miracles happened to him? He still doesn't fully believe, but now he does. What happened? Well, thankfully, he's going to tell us what happened. Verse 4. Let's keep reading. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Life is good. I'm rich. I have everything I need, plus some. I got all the best food. I got um, all the best clothes. I have wives. I have concubines. Anybody I want is mine. It's all mine. Come to me. I'm contented and prosperous. He has a big house, a manicured lawn. I think he lives over in Park Hill. Verse 5 says, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He's terrified, even though he has everything. And he had the greatest city in the ancient world. He had the tons of money. Everything he wanted was his. He could just say, hmm, what do I want to eat? And boom, that food would be there for him, right? Say, what kind of music do I want to listen to? Boom, the musicians would come into his room and play music for him. He'd say, hmm, I want some clothes from, from anywhere in the world, and he could go like, boom, and it would be brought to him, custom-tailored. Almost sounds like us today. You're hungry? Okay, let's, let's get out my app, <laughs> get the delivery, exactly what I want from my favorite chef, perfect dish, delivered to my home. I don't even have to get up, right? Okay, what music do I want? Pull up Spotify. I can listen to my favorite music, and my musicians play for me on demand, right? Clothes, we got Amazon, right? Anything you want from anywhere in the world, it can be to your home in 24 hours. We live at the level today that emperors did 3,000 years ago. You guys see this? There are many people today who are living contented and prosperous, and they think they've got it all figured out. Get whatever I want on demand. Many of us live like many emperors. We do. And we get mad when those things don't come immediately. Like, what's going on? What's taking my delivery driver so long? And if we had the power that Nebuchadnezzar had, we'd have them torn limb from limb and their house is destroyed, right? Let's be honest. 
We live like kings. And it's our pride that we live contented and prosperous. And when you're in those moments of contentedness and prosperous and you have it all together in your pride, you think you don't need God. You don't. When we were planning our Christmas Eve service, I, I think I've shared this with you guys. We had a whole team together, and we were thinking and praying, like, how do we do it? And we came up as our idea that what you guys have, the cards on your seat, is for a picture imperfect Christmas. Because we were like, hey, we all look around, and we see people with their perfect social media posts that are like the perfect filter and the right angle, and everybody's smiling in the picture. And then you get the cards in the mail, and you're like, wow, everybody else has the perfect Christmas. And then we look at our own, and we're like, ooh, okay. I got issues with mom and dad. I got this thing going on. I, I'm kind of lonely. All these problems that we have, and we're like, hey, a picture imperfect Christmas. Let's be honest about how we're all feeling, and let's invite people in with this. Like, this is how we're all feeling. Let's just admit it. And somebody was like, well, what about all the people that are like this, contented and prosperous, that have the nice homes in, in Central Park or in Park Hill? And they have money, and they have whatever they want for Christmas. They buy all the gifts they want and more. They go over and stay at fancy hotels. What about those people? Are, are they, how are we going to reach them? And I was like, we're not going to. Because when you're contented and prosperous, you don't need God, right? I got everything I need. You think everything is going fine. And so we're like, we're not going to try to reach those people. Because it takes an act of God to reach those people. We're going to try to reach the hurting people, the lonely people. People who are like, I miss my family. I need community. Like, come in. Come in with the rest of us. We're struggling too. That's what we're going to do with our Christmas Eve this year. Um, because those people, when they're contented and prosperous, it does take an act of God. And I pray for people. I have friends. I have neighbors. And I'm like, they got it all together. They make a lot of money, way more than I ever will. They have a great house. They got a housekeeper. Okay, they got tutors for their kids. Kind of like an emperor, Right? They got it all figured out. It's going to take an act of God to get their attention. And I pray sometimes that people would have dreams and supernatural things happen to them so that they would have their eyes awakened. I pray that for people. And that's how God sometimes moves. He did it with Nebuchadnezzar. He got him terrified by a dream. The most powerful, richest person in the world was freaking out over a dream because God gave it to him. What's really cool, you hear stories out of places like the Middle East, Muslim countries, that are very hard for Christians to go into and tell people about Jesus, where Muslims are having dreams about Jesus. And they are coming to faith in Jesus Christ at cost to their lives because of a dream. God still works in these miraculous ways. So I'm praying for supernatural things for people. Dreams can get people's attention. And that's what happens for Nebuchadnezzar. It, it shakes him up just enough. So what he does then was he calls in the interpreters again, just like he did in chapter 2. He was like, okay, bring in all the people, all the astrologers, all the magicians, all the wisest people from the, the entire empire. Bring them in so they can tell me what my dream means. He's so freaked out that he's going to tell them this time and, and say, okay, I'm going to tell you the dream. Now tell me what it means. But none of them could interpret his dream, just like in chapter 2. None of them could interpret his dream. Now, I don't know if that's actually true or if they actually knew what it was, but they were terrified to tell him bad news. But either way, nobody would tell him what it means. So what does he do? Well, bring in Daniel. Okay, Daniel gets it every time. He's this man in whom the spirits of the gods, that's what Nebuchadnezzar says, the spirits of the gods are in. And he brings in Daniel, and Daniel tells him what his dream means. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that there is this giant tree. 
and it grows and grows and grows till its branches fill the sky, and it can be seen all the way up to the heavens. And anyone on the entire earth can see this giant tree, and it has beautiful leaves, abundant fruit, and the birds of the sky fly and perch in its branches, and all the animals, all the wild animals, come and take shelter in its shade. So that's the first part of the dream. And Daniel interprets this. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, that tree is you. You are this gigantic tree. You have grown, and this empire is the greatest empire on earth. People from all over the world come to find protection from you, and they eat your food and live in your gigantic city and are protected by you. So Nebuchadnezzar at this point is like, yeah, I like this dream. But then there was a second part in the dream where an angel, a messenger called a watcher in this passage, comes down to proclaim that this tree will be cut down. And it will be chopped down, but then metal will be put over the trunk of the tree for a time. It says actually seven times, which is a weird phrase. Nobody quite knows what it means. For seven times, the trunk of the tree will be covered up. But then there's a third part in the dream. Because the angel also proclaims, he says, And you will go insane and become like an animal crawling on all fours, eating the grass, and living out in the elements. And Daniel interprets that part of the dream for him. I want you to see this in verse 24. Verse 24, this is what Daniel says. He says, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. It's not just that God is one of the gods. He's the God over all people. And then he says, verse 26, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. By heaven, he refers to God. As soon as you admit that God is the God, the one true God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, when you admit that, then you will be restored. And that's how the tree can grow again. So here's this interpretation Daniel gives to him. And he has to acknowledge that God is God. And it's interesting for the king who has everything, who is worshipped literally by people, who has all the money, all the power, God is going to make him a fool. Like an animal. To be humiliated in front of everybody. That's what God is going to do for this man who has raised himself up in pride. And that's why our big idea today is don't act a fool. Let Jesus rule. Don't act a fool. You will look like a fool. You will be a fool if you continue in pride and in sin. The alternative is to let Jesus rule. If you let him rule and you make him king and you say, I am humble, I am just a servant. I am a sinner in need of a savior. When we're willing to admit that, we're letting Jesus rule. We're letting Jesus rule. And, and that's why Daniel is telling him, Nebuchadnezzar, this is what you got to do. 
And in fact, when God gives warnings like this, he gives an opportunity for us to repent. So Daniel says this next. I love the boldness of Daniel. I can't imagine saying this to the most powerful man in the world who has killed many people and thrown them into the flames and torn off their limbs and all that stuff. Verse 27, he says, Therefore, your majesty, very politely, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Could you imagine saying that? You need to repent of your sins, your majesty. This is a boldness that Daniel has to tell him and warn him. This dream was here so that you could change your ways. This is how it always is with God. When he gives a warning about destruction or judgment coming, it's so that people could change their ways. And maybe, like the Ninevites in the book of Jonah, would repent of their sins and destruction wouldn't come upon them. Like There's always an opportunity for repentance. To renounce your sins, the idea of repentance in the Bible is that you're going this way in your sin, doing what you want because you think you are king, and you're going to say, no, I'm going to turn from that, and I'm going to turn towards God. Repentance is two things. It's turning from your sin and turning toward God. You guys get that? That's what repentance is. And, and there's an opportunity now to repent, to turn away from that. And that's so important for us because what we do, instead of making Jesus our king, instead of saying what God says is true and right, we make ourselves kings. This is what we do in sin. Whenever you're sinning, it's because you think, I can do what I want. I don't have to do what God wants. I'm going to be in charge for this situation. And, and we kind of justify our own sins. We come to a reason. When we treat someone really poorly, we say, oh, I was just really emotional that day. If you knew what I was going through, you'd understand. It's like, no, you were a jerk. We, we do things like take something, we steal something, and we're like, oh, to that big corporation, it's just a rounding error. They're not even going to notice. They're a multi-billion dollar corporation. It's nothing. Taxes, the government has all the money. They can print money. If I just don't report that little bit of cash, it's not that big of a deal, right? Don't we find ways to make ourselves king? To make ourselves gods? We, we do this with, with our kids. We, we mistreat them and then we're like, well, think of all the things I do for them. Or kids, we dishonor your parents and you say, well, they're just out of touch. They don't get what it's like to be a kid nowadays. I had someone share with me and they're like, I used to just say, oh, I was young and didn't know back then. It's like sin is sin. What's wrong is wrong. Just because we excuse ourselves and we say, I'm above God's law, it's still sin. It's still wrong, and we need to repent. We need to repent of our sins. And, and what's really important with a passage like this, it's so easy to look at it and be like, see, Nebuchadnezzar did it wrong. And, and we, could, we could look at it and be like, oh, look at that president. Look at that congressman, that senator, that governor. Look at that CEO. Oh, my gosh, what awful sinners. They need to repent. They're so prideful. It's easy to do that, right? But whenever a passage like this on repentance comes, it's not so that we can get the binoculars out and look at everybody else's sin. It's supposed to be a mirror to see our own. It's supposed to be a mirror to see our own. How do I need to repent? So before you text this message to somebody who you think needs to repent, let's take the plank out of your own eye, right? Let's look with the mirror. Pastor Larry Osborne out in California tells a story about he received an email from a guy he called Chad. 
And this guy was like, this church has gone soft. This church is what's wrong with all the world because you're not going out and talking about how evil the sin of homosexuality is. And you're not preaching against all the sinners and you're not standing up for what's right and that's what's wrong with America. Churches like this. So Pastor Larry Osborne gets that email and he says, who is this guy? Didn't recognize the name. So he asked everybody in their church, asked around until he finally figured out this guy had been coming for a few months, Chad had, and um, then he also found out when he asked a few more questions that Chad was sleeping with his girlfriend. So Larry Osborne was like, oh. He said, you're right. There are a lot of sexual sins in our world. And he copied and pasted a whole bunch of scriptures, especially the ones that talk about premarital sex, and he underlined them. And he sent them back. He said, maybe you should prayerfully consider all these scriptures. Chad never came to that church again because he did not like receiving a mirror in the mail, right? He wanted to keep the binoculars to see everybody else's sin and point it out. And we can't do that. When we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar's sin, we don't point out to all the sinners that are out there. We say, how have I sinned? What have I done wrong? And how do I need to repent, to turn away of the way I've been going and turn toward God? That's what repentance is. And what's interesting about it is a lot of people think that because judgment doesn't come immediately, they're safe, that they're okay. Because even right after Nebuchadnezzar gets this, he does nothing about it. And it says in verse 29, 12 months later. Nothing happens for 12 months. This word of judgment, this terrifying dream, Daniel interprets it. You've got to repent or bad things are going to happen. You'll be made the fool. Nebuchadnezzar does nothing for 12 months. For 365 days, for a whole year, he never repents of his sin. And he's probably thinking, I'm doing pretty good. That was just a bad dream. I had a little too much hashish or something, right? Instead of looking in the mirror and repenting of his sins. And I'm telling you this because we look at our lives and we look at the lives of people around us and they're like, they're sinning. They're doing what's wrong and nothing bad's happening to them. In fact, sometimes good things seem to be happening to them. Instead of thinking that maybe God is being patient with them waiting for them to repent. Peter tells us this is how God operates. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says that Jesus isn't really being slow about his promised return, about him coming back in judgment, even though it sometimes seems that way. But he is waiting for the good reason that he is not willing that any should perish, and he is giving time for sinners to repent. God is patient. God is slow. He hasn't acted immediately because he's giving you another opportunity and another one day after day. Please come back. Please repent of your sins. Turn back to me. And I will give you grace. Twelve months later, Nebuchadnezzar still hasn't done it. But then it says, if you keep reading in verse 29, it says, Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this... The great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Can't you just sense that pride coming off of him? And if anybody had reason to be pr proud, it was him, right? I mean, I want you guys to see some of the recreations of the city of Babylon that, that he would have built. Okay, this is maybe a recreation of the city, and you can see this right here in the front. This is called the Ishtar Gate. It was famous, and people came from all around the world to see it in its beautiful, vibrant colors and how great and huge it was. 
And if you look at the city, um, there was also next to the river, and, and he had to get the best engineers to bring in the river through canals. Like, this was unheard of in the ancient world, but that's what he did. And he built giant walls. Um, one uh, Greek historian says the walls were so wide that a chariot could turn fully around on them. And then he built places like this, this ziggurat, this giant tower, and it was huge, and there was a temple to one of his gods on top. And I wrote this down because this tower was called Etemananki, which um, is translated to mean the building which is the foundation of heaven and earth. Sense the pride. And he built things like that. And he also married this woman from northern Iran in the mountains where it was mountainous and there was lots of uh, greenery and brought her into the desert in, in Babylon. So he built her a mountainous garden called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Heard of it? It's considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And he built this with its gardens. And that too was a feat of engineering strength. How do you get water to the top of those terraces? He had to figure that out and, and get plants imported from all around the empire to make the most beautiful garden in the world. He built all of this. It was the most grand and glorious city that had ever been built, and it was all for his glory. And he inhaled, right? <laughs> Have you ever heard that? Like, one, one congressman, like, how do you stay humble in Congress? Like, you don't inhale, right? Pride, okay, if you guys didn't know that, okay. Don't inhale the pride, because it gets to your head. It gets to your head, and that's exactly what happened. To Nebuchadnezzar. He is at the height of his power, height of his glory. Everything is about him. He is the chief, and that's the most dangerous place to be. So I'm telling you this because some of you, you feel good about yourself. I'm doing well. I'm doing great at school. I'm doing great with my job. I'm making money. I'm at the top of my game. People respect me. I'm a good dad. I'm a great spouse. Look at me. I'm so great. And when you get there, that's the most dangerous place you can be. Because God opposes the proud. While he is still speaking, it says in verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Can you imagine this king at the height of his power all of a sudden running out of his castle on all fours, eating the grass, how foolish does he look? I look pretty foolish right now, don't I? I mean, how foolish is he, the king? He has his crown on his head. Now his hair is growing out. He looks like an animal. He's eating like the animals. How humiliating. He's living out in the wild. He's crazy. And this happened to him because he did not humble himself in repentance. And in his pride, God brought him low. Now, in case you're wondering... This is actually a mil real mental thing that happens, mental breakdown. <clears throat> I researched and even read some medical journals for you guys this week. You're welcome. That there is a real condition um, that's called zoanthropy. Okay, I probably mispronounced that. Zoanthropy. When human beings have a mental breakdown and think that they are animals. Now, since 1850, there have been 56 documented cases of this. People try to figure out, they eat like animals, they think they're animals, they act like animals, they even walk around on all fours like animals. 
This has been a real condition that's diagnosed. And in addition to that, you can narrow it down to this condition that's called boanthropy, meaning you're like a bovine, like a cow or a cattle. That's what you think you are. And there have been documented cases of this where people literally eat the grass and think they are a cow. Now, we don't know if that's exactly what he suffered from. Because when it comes to mental things like this, there are real psychological disorders that happen to people. That because of trauma in their past or in their present, things happen to their minds. And mental health is a real thing that you need to go to a therapist, sometimes talk to a doctor. And that's part of it because our brains can break down. We can have issues. We live in a fallen world. There's also physical issues that we have too. Because of physical things in our body, sometimes there's chemical breakdowns in our brain. Things are not operating like they should be. And that's why we do sometimes need to go get some medical help. Like it, that is a real thing. There are also spiritual things that happen to us. That sometimes people are attacked by demons. Or, or God brings upon them something spiritual. And that's when you need to talk to a pastor or a counselor. Or sometimes it's a combination of all three of those things. In this passage... It's not about any of those things. So if, if you're struggling with any of those things in your personal life, we need to get some help. Like, we need help. But I do think that God sometimes uses those things to get our attention. He brings us down, and, and some of you have felt this, that you are brought down to your lowest place, and you feel like a fool. Maybe you did something foolish and crazy. You're like, yeah, it was a mental health breakdown. I need some help. And when we're at those lowest points, that's the time where we can cry out to God, for help. And we need to. Because God brings us low so that we'll cry out to him and look up to him. Look up to him for help. And that's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. After seven times. We're not told if this is seven years, seven months, seven days. I don't know. It's seven times. After seven times of this. It's a fullness of the time period that it was. It says in verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. Remember, he's acting like a cow. So he can't say anything. He can't speak. He can't cry out in prayer. But he can look up to God, can he? To admit he's low and he needs help from above. He raises his eye toward heaven, and my sanity was restored like that. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And in verse 36, he continues. He says, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 37, he says, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. Because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He finally got it. After days, weeks, months, years crawling around, humiliated. Here's the thing, guys. If you don't humble yourself before God, he'll humiliate you. It's a harsh word, right? If you don't humble yourself before God, he will humiliate you. And that's what he did to Nebuchadnezzar. As an example for us so we can learn from this. What's amazing is that we have these partial records from history about Nebuchadnezzar. And it seems, if you read closely, that he had a time period, because he's a historical figure, a time period where he kind of had a mental breakdown. And for a little while, his son was on the throne, and then he came back and ruled. It almost matches up with what the Bible says. 
I wonder if it's true. I think it is. That this actually happened. That it is true. And, and we don't even have to look into ancient history. We know of people today that were great and everybody respected them and looked up to them. And now we think they're crazy. I'm not going to name any names. But I'm telling you this because we can be restored if we fall. And I know that I have looked around at people. And I have witnessed this personally. People who in pride, instead of admitting they were wrong and trying to fix things, let their marriage fall apart. And in pride, they went through a divorce. And in pride, they lost their money and lost their home. And their kids started to dislike them and they were distanced from them. Because in pride, they never said that they were partially even responsible for it. Pride has destroyed families. I've seen people who in pride, instead of taking feedback from a boss or saying they were wrong, got fired in pride, refusing to admit they were wrong, and then lost money, lost friends, and lost everything. I have seen churches fall apart and be completely gone because the pastor or the leader didn't admit that what they did was wrong. Pride comes before destruction. That's what it tells us in the Proverbs. In the Proverbs, it says that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Pride will destroy you. If we don't humble ourselves, God will humiliate us. But... If we humble ourselves, if we repent of our sin and turn back to him, he has grace for us. And this is the amazing news. Even King Nebuchadnezzar, who was so far gone, such an evil emperor, had done such evil things, God had grace for him to restore him back to his position, to flourish even more than he had before because he turned to God in humility. And this is why I'm telling you, don't act a fool. Let Jesus rule. Let Jesus rule. Let's turn to him. Because here's the good news, guys. In James chapter 4, James chapter 4, it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He shows favor to the humble. He likes the humble. He cares about the humble. People who are willing to admit that they are sinners, that people that can say, I need help. I don't have it all figured out. I'm struggling. I'm hurting. Those are the people that God loves and he wants to lift up. But he opposes the proud. He brings them down. That's really what this chapter is showing us, right? Nebuchadnezzar, when he thought he was all that, when he made himself a god, God took him down. But when he lowered himself and said, I'm not even a man. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm an animal, right? And when he had that much humility, looked up to heaven, God lifted him back up. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So don't act a fool. Let Jesus rule. So here's some practical tips for you guys. You are never more foolish than you are right in this moment. Okay? I'm telling you this. Uh, Tim Keller, <laughs> I think, said it really well. Tim Keller says, Your future self will always see your present self as unwise and immature. That means you are currently a fool right now. What if you had the humility to admit that? right now you think, I'm doing great. Look how far I've come. Well, you've got a long way to go, okay? And in the future, you're going to look back at yourself and think, what was I thinking? So if we had the humility in this moment to say, I need help, and it's not just for a mental and emotional help. Like, we should definitely admit we need help for those things. We should get therapy. We should get help for our marriage. We need to ask for help. But it's also that we need to get some people in our life who are wiser than us, 
who, who know more than we do, get a mentor in your life. Have someone you can call up because you will make big decisions. Talk to somebody before you do it so you don't do something foolish and ruin your life. Before you send the text, the email, ask for some help. Say, what do you think? Should I send this? Get a mentor. Get some advice. Maybe you just need to say, I don't know. That might be the most important thing you can do in humility. Saying, I don't know the answer. I don't have it figured out. Let's try to figure it out. Or maybe you need to admit you're wrong. This is what we have to do in humility. Parents, you can admit you're wrong to your kids. Spouses, admit you have done something wrong to your spouse. It's way easier than the alternative. We've all sinned. We've all fall short of the glory of God. Let's admit it and humbly repent of our sin. And when we do, God will lift us up in due time. That's the amazing thing about humility. If you humble yourself, God will lift you up. It's the promise. He shows favor to the humble. He shows favor to the humble. So don't act a fool. Let Jesus rule. And I think the most important thing that we all need to do today is to repent of our sins. We all have sin that we are walking in, that we're hiding, that we haven't admitted, haven't dealt with. We're still walking in that. Maybe nobody else knows, but God knows. And it's time to repent today. And in humility, because that's the heart of repentance is humility, is to come back to God and ask for his grace and forgiveness. Because the amazing thing about our God, about Jesus, was that he had all things in glory. He was on high. He had angels worshiping him. And yet he came. And he did not wait to be humiliated. But do you know how he came into our world? With the animals. He was born in a manger that the oxen ate from. He didn't have to be humiliated like Nebuchadnezzar because he started humble. He started low. And that's how he lived his life. As a humble man serving others, loving others, giving himself to others. And then as Philippians 2 tells us, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself. Became a servant for us. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our king laid it all down and suffered and died so that we could be forgiven of our sins, be given grace and favor, and then been lifted back up to reign with him forever. And that's why it's worth it to get down and humble ourselves before our God. Because he will lift us up. That's where Jesus started. That's where we need to start today. So I want us to have an opportunity right now to repent of our sins, to ask for forgiveness, to ask for, for help for whatever you're going through. So let's close our eyes together. Lord God, we're sinners. I, I, I'm here on the stage as the chief of sinners in this church, the lead pastor, but also the lead failure, the lead sinner that I have hurt people. I've made decisions that have hurt people. Lord God, I have sinned against my wife and against my kids. And I have hidden sins that I don't even want to talk about, but you know them. And I repent, God. Forgive me. Lord God, we all come before you right now. And we give you our sin. We humble ourselves before you. Lord God, we ask for your grace. We ask for forgiveness to abound to us sinners. Heal us. 
Restore us. Show us your favor and our humility right now. And lift us up again. Now I want to tell you, some of you, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Or you don't understand what it means. Let me tell you, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how much you've failed, Jesus died to forgive you, to give you grace again and again and again. So when you come to him, he will forgive you and he will lift you up and he will let you live forever with him in eternity. But you have to accept his gift of eternal life and forgiveness. So I want to give you the opportunity to do this. I'm going to say a prayer right now and I want you to repeat after me. If you're already a follower of Jesus, say this prayer out loud to give courage to somebody who needs to pray for the first time. Please repeat after me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Save me. Forgive me. In faith, I declare, Jesus is king. Fill me with your spirit. Give me the gift of eternal life. Help me to follow you and to be humble and let you rule. Now with eyes closed, if you said that prayer for the first time, we wanna celebrate with you. We think it's an amazing decision you made because God is lifting you up right now in your humility. So would you please put your hand in the air on the count of three? One, two, three. Put your hand in the air if you made that decision today. Praise God, yes, we celebrate with you. Lord God, we are so grateful that we can turn to you and you have forgiveness and grace and favor for us sinners, that you love us in spite of our sin. You have come to lift us up and that's the reason why we say you rule, Jesus. You are our king and we surrender all to you. Lord, we lift your name high and we are grateful that you stoop down to lift us up with you. We surrender all this morning. Amen. Would you please stand with us as we sing this song?